we continue our series in the Psalms this summer, and um, this morning we continue where we left off last week with Psalm 34. I want to remind you before I pray and, and we dive into the second half of Psalm 34, uh, I did this last week, but for those of you who weren't here, if you would look in your bulletin at Psalm 34 or in your Bible, um, and you'll see a pretty natural division in this psalm comes between verses 10 and 11. Um, Charles Spurgeon said that verses 1 through 10 are David's song of praise, and that 11 through 22 are his sermon um, about the goodness of God and practicing the goodness of God. So uh, that's kind of how we're looking at this um, this morning. And you'll see uh, also, I pointed out last week, that there are four times when the word good is mentioned, and those are in verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. You could circle that if you want. Um, and then in verse 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then in verse 12, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? And then in verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. Those four uh, instances of the word good are right in the heart of the psalm, and those four are actually split in the middle uh, between verses 10 and 11, just like the psalm is. So uh, last week we looked at uh, two of those, and, and this morning we're going to focus on the other two. So that's just a little Bible study to help you prepare yourself for um, hearing God's word this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord, indeed, you are good, and all that you do is good. And apart from you, we have no good thing, Psalm 16 says. And, and then this morning, Psalm 34 says that with you, we lack no good thing. And so this morning, we ask again that you would give us an overwhelming sense of your goodness, as through your word and your table, uh, we come to taste and see the goodness of the heart of King Jesus and our Father and the Holy Spirit for us, your people. Um, would you allow us to get that true heart sense, not just head knowledge, but a heart sense of your goodness and increase in us a desire to reflect your goodness in the way that we live in the places you've put us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I told you the story about Alan Gardner, the English missionary, who in 1851, along with six other missionaries, traveled uh, to the southernmost tip of South America to begin a mission there, a brand new mission. Um, and along the way, he was almost there when their ship crashed on the islands down there around the, uh, the tip of South America. And uh, they lost 
pretty much everything. And then over a six to eight month period of time, each of those seven missionaries slowly died of hunger and thirst. And uh, their journals were found later, and that's how we know a lot of the story. But uh, Alan Gardner was the last of those to die. Uh, He watched each of his missionary friends die before he himself um, suffered uh, death from starvation. Um, When they found his journal, Besides Bible verses that were in there and, and thoughts and letters to friends and family, uh, he also wrote poetry, uh, some of which, as you read them, they, they seem like hymns, and I don't know if he was thinking there was music to go with them, but on the front of our bulletin this morning, I put one of those verses uh, that he wrote, and it says this, Whate'er in wisdom he denies... A richer boon his grace supplies, a peace the world can ne'er bestow. Though naught remain, we're not bereft. What most we value still is left, the rock whence living waters flow. Now, if you're like me, you need a translator to understand that old English. But let me, let me go over it again because it's so rich. What he's saying, and this is a man who is starving to death, a man who, uh, last week I told you, prayed that God would give him water, and he was able to get a little bit of rainwater that was dripping off of the stern of the broken boat that he was living inside of on the beach. He was able to collect it in his boot and drink just a little bit. This man wrote this, that whatever... In God's wisdom, he denies us a richer boon, a richer treasure his grace supplies, a peace the world could never bestow. And though naught remained, though nothing remained, we're not bereft, we're not totally without. What we most value still is left the rock. Jesus, from whom the living waters flow. I also told you last week that he wrote uh, one of the verses from Psalm 34 in his journal. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, which he knew what that meant. But they that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And also in his journal were found these words, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. And so last week we talked a little bit about what what makes someone say that in those circumstances. And we began to see that in Psalm 34, David was also expressing uh, this overwhelming sense of the goodness of God. And David was in the midst of very difficult things. Here he was, the anointed next king of Israel. He was a celebrity. The women of the the land were singing songs about him. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. He He was quite the man, and yet he found himself 
in the context of this psalm. He wrote this psalm in the context of circumstances in which he found himself driven away from King Saul, pursued by Saul and his armies to kill him, so hungry that he had to go to the tabernacle and ask the priest to give him something to eat, and so desperate for safety that he ran to the hometown of Goliath, whom he had killed, and sought refuge in the Philistine camp and had to act like a madman in order to escape with his life. And yet David is overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. And I'll remind you again that this, uh, this struggle to trust the good heart of God has been with us from the Garden of Eden. That Satan uh, came into the garden which Genesis tells us God created and said was good. And he gave to Adam and Eve as he set them in this good garden and said, all of this is yours to enjoy and to cultivate. Um, And Satan slithered in and began to try to create doubt in their minds that God was really as good as he said he was. And he showed them this One tree that God said you can't have. And Genesis 3 says that Adam and Eve looked at it, and it it was good for food, and it, it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable. And it was as if the serpent said, look how good this is. How could a good God withhold this good thing from you? Perhaps he was essentially saying, why don't you, Adam and Eve, come here, why don't you taste and see that this fruit is good? Blessed are those who don't trust God. And again, I I reminded you last week, and all this is to catch us up, but also it's worth repeating. Um, I need to hear it again. Martin Luther summed all this up with this, Incredible statement. He said, The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and therefore must take matters into our own hands. The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. So, this matter of trusting the goodness of God, trusting that God's heart is good, is really at the core of the battle that's going on in each of our hearts. And even this week, oh, the stories uh, that I hear, whether it's of people I don't know or people in our own church who are suffering things that make you think, why would a good God allow that why would a good God allow a a Christian couple who wants to adopt twins that are being born so they can raise them to know Jesus why would he allow those twins to be born prematurely and die so 
So we, this is our struggle. And, and you've got countless stories and ways that the enemy wants to cause you to doubt the goodness of God. But this is why we need the Psalms. I mean, this Psalm is David being extremely confident in God's goodness. But realize, David had a whole bunch of other Psalms where he publicly wrestled with the goodness of God. The very next Psalm, he says in verse 17, How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, his enemies, my precious life from the lions. How long, Lord? In Psalm 13, he says it again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 60, he said, Oh God, you have rejected us. You've made your people see hard things, he says. So David's no stranger to wrestling with whether God is good or not. But there's something about this psalm, there's something that happened that causes him to praise God. Life in a fallen world leaves us with a bitter taste in our mouths, and our suffering blinds us from seeing the goodness of God's heart. So we need David to help us learn to sing Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And that's what he does. He, in the first 10 verses of the psalm, he sings God's praise for his goodness. And then the second half of the psalm, he sermonizes. He helps us to learn uh, a little more about God's goodness um, by practicing the goodness of God. I reminded you last week that uh, the reason David could sing so confidently in those first 10 verses of God's goodness is because he was remembering God's rescue. He remembered that God had delivered him, saved him. And so for us, as we said last week, um, the gospel, this table, um, is a reminder to us of how God has delivered us from our worst enemy, and from even the wrath of God himself so that we might be reconciled to him. And so, no matter what, we can sing confidently of God's goodness. And praising God's goodness is one response to the goodness of God. But David goes on to tell us the other response, and that is practicing God's goodness. So that's where we're going to go this morning as we first look at this sermon about practicing God's goodness, uh, verses 11, and, uh, 11 through 14, let me read them to you again. He says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who, de- who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David says, I know I've, I've asked you to sing with me. Now I'm asking you to learn from me. Here's another response to God's goodness. Practice it. Do good. I told you last week uh, that Ed Hartman says, to fear the Lord is to take him seriously, 
to take God more seriously than you take anything or anyone else. And so David says, come, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I'll teach you how to take God seriously. And then he goes on and and, and asks this rhetorical question. He says, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may seek good? In our vernacular, he would say, who doesn't want to live the good life? Who doesn't want to live the good life? Listen to me, he says. I'll teach you what the good life is all about. And then he goes on to say, very simply, here's the good life. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. See, the natural response of my sinful heart is to doubt the goodness of God and to take matters into my own hands. But the supernatural response of God's children who take God seriously, who know they are rebels who deserve God's rejection, their supernatural response is to taste and see the goodness of God in his love to them, to reconcile rebels to himself and make them his sons and daughters. And then... Now that they are sons and daughters, to want to be good like their father is good. To want to do good. 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. You could say it this way. We want to be good because he was good to us. Psalm 119.68 says something very similar. He says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The statutes were the law of God, which were to love God and to love others. Essentially, he's saying, God, you are good and you do good. Teach me to be and do good. Teach me to be a person who loves you and who loves people according to your statutes, your commands. Lord, you've been good to me. You've always, you always do good for me. So let your goodness make me good so that I may display your goodness and magnify it for others to see. Because what we all long for is to see goodness. So in verse 8, David said, the Lord is good. Verse 10, he said, the Lord gives good things. Verse 12, he says, if we long to see good, then verse 14, we will live to do good by the goodness of God. Um, Peter quoted Psalm 34 twice in his letters. Last week, I had one of those passages that we read for our scripture reading. This week, Annie read uh, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Listen to what he says, and it's in your bulletin. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now let's look at these verses backwards. This is what he's saying. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, you've tasted his goodness through his salvation, through his deliverance, then not only taste, let that Put a craving, a hunger in you 
a longing for pure spiritual milk so that you could grow up into the salvation he's given you. And then when you do, you will put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. You see how that works? Fascinating that Peter uses the same kind of uh, difference in a person's life as David does in the way they talk and relate to people. Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. If indeed you've tasted that God is good because he saved you, then grow up in that salvation and be good like your father and let it show up in the way you relate to people and speak to people and about people. Let's go back to Psalm 34. Verses 13 and 14 says this. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Uh, When he says turn away from evil and do good, the evil and the good here are relational evil and relational good. How do I know that? Because the middle part of those two verses talking about even evil and good are explained by the context, what's on the beginning and the after those verses that say, that talk about the tongue and how we speak to one another and seeking and pursuing peace with one another. Turn away from relational evil and do good. Relate good. So would you know and grow in the goodness of God that he's shown you? You will go and show goodness to others by the way you talk to and about them, by the way you relate to them. James chapter 3, which in adult Sunday school this fall, we're going to be in the book of James. Um, If you don't want to be convicted of your sin, don't read James 3 but I dare you to read it. But he's saying the same thing. People who know the goodness of God will show the goodness of God and it shows up first in the way they speak to and about people. So how are we doing, Mountain Fellowship? And James 3, by the way, talks to preachers. So I'm with you in this. Are we growing in the goodness of God and showing it to one another in the way we relate to one another, in the way we speak to one another and about one another? When we have issues with one another, which, come on, put a bunch of sinners in a room together and just wait, there's going to be issues, right? When we have disagreements with one another, when we're disappointed in one another, We all have expectations in relationships that aren't met. When we have those issues and disagreements and disappointments, are we talking to one another about these things or just about one another? One of my prayers for this church is that we would be. I'm not saying we aren't, but I'm asking that we would continue. God, please make us a body of believers that when we have struggles with one another, we just don't get each other. We don't, 
we're disappointed in one another, that we would talk to one another, not about one another. But that, this part of the sermon, David's sermon just leaves you, well, I can't do that. I'm not that good. You're saying seek peace and pursue it, do good? I can't. I try. And being the great teacher he is, he, he knows this. And so he closes the rest of his sermon in verses 15 through 22 by saying, essentially, of course you can't be good. Of course you can't be good without a Savior who proves and provides that goodness for you. You're not righteous. The, the rest of these verses, he compares the righteous and the wicked. Um, well, let's just look at this. Um, we studied in Psalm 1 several weeks ago, and we learned that no one is righteous. All the Psalms teach that no one is righteous. No, not one, as Paul said when he quoted the Psalms in, in Romans 3 and said, no one is righteous. The righteous are not those who get it all right. Otherwise, none of us could be considered righteous. The way we use our tongues and our keyboards and our smartphones and the ways, the ways we fail to per, pursue peace with one another are clear proof that we're not righteous. We're not good like God. All of us were in the wicked and those who do evil category until God did what verse 22 describes. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So the righteous are those who have taken refuge in their Redeemer, which was Psalm 2, by the way. Rebels who take refuge in King Jesus are now considered righteous only because he has credited his righteousness to their account. And I want to take you back in your program to our Confession of Faith, Heidelberg Question 60, which teaches what the Bible teaches about how, to, how, how are you going to be righteous. It says, how are you righteous before God? Only by faith in Jesus Christ. Only by taking refuge in Him. It says, Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them. James says, if you've broken one of them, you've broken them all. And I'm still inclined to do all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, not because of what I've done, but out of His mere grace, he imputes to me, he credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as, as, as if I had never had nor committed any sin and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart, if only I take refuge in the righteous King then he will credit all of his righteousness to me, and then I can be that person that Psalm 34 says is righteous. Now, 
Listen to how good God is to those who are righteous in him, who are redeemed by him, who take refuge in him. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Verse 16, the, you hear that? The eyes of the Lord are for you. <laughs> the ears of the Lord are listening to you. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. If God is for you, who can be against you? Paul said in Romans 8. I'm finding as we go through these psalms, Romans 8 echoes all these themes. God is not against those who take refuge in him. He's against those who refuse to take refuge in him. Even those who think they're righteous. Verse 17, what else does God, how else does he show himself good to the righteous? Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Skip to verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He delivers them out of all their troubles. He delivers them out of all their afflictions. Now, some use this verse to say that God promises to deliver us from all of our afflictions now. But the next verse is quoted by John as referring to Jesus. Jesus was not the one that says not one of his bones will be broken. Remember, they came to the cross and they were going to break the legs of all three, um, which would speed up their death. But when they got to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. So they did not break his legs with a, with a club. And John quoted Psalm 34 and said that that was a fulfillment. So Psalm 34, this is about Jesus, the Savior, who is good and provides our goodness. Jesus was not delivered from his afflictions until he was resurrected. And because of his resurrection, we have hope that at our resurrection, we will be delivered from all of our afflictions. As a friend of mine likes to say, ain't nothing wrong with me that a resurrection won't fix. In the meantime, though, we will experience many afflictions, some of which he may be pleased to deliver us from now, but he promises he will deliver you from all of them later. Right in the middle of those two verses, it says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. What a sweet, sweet promise. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves the crushed in spirit. If that's you, you can know that he's near you. How can you know that's true? Because verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Uh, Jesus is the righteous one whose bones were not crushed with a club so that our souls would not be crushed under the wrath of God that we deserve. But Jesus' soul was crushed. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? It says he took with him Peter and James and John and 
he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He was brokenhearted. His soul was crushed. He even said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. His soul was crushed so that yours wouldn't have to be. As Spurgeon said, child of God, you cost Christ too much for him to forget you. You cost Christ too much for him to forget you. Finally, the goodness of God that we most need will become clear when we stand before him on the day of judgment. The last two verses allude to that final judgment of the wicked and the righteous. Verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Many are the afflictions of the righteous now, verse 19 tells us, but the affliction of final condemnation will never be ours. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. In a few minutes, we're going to sing these words. Jesus draws near our broken hearts. For us, his soul was crushed. When we take comfort in his scars, our anxious fears are hushed. Christ Jesus is our righteousness. By his blood, we are redeemed. Sometimes afflicted in distress, yes, but never more condemned. One commentator summed it all up this way. All of the benefits held out to us in this psalm are are ours because of Jesus Christ. Jesus tasted the bitter cup of God's wrath in our place that we might taste and see that he is good. That's what this table is about. And I want to close with this quote from John Newton that's that's in your bulletin as well. I think this really captures uh, what Psalm 34 is about. Newton says that a lively impression of God's love or of his sufferings for us or of the glories within the veil, in other words, the, the glories within the presence of God, accompanied with a due sense of the misery from which we are redeemed, these thoughts will enable us to be not only submissive, but even joyful in tribulations. In other words, when we understand that we deserve the affliction of eternal condemnation, and then yet we catch a glimpse in the Bible, in the table, of the love, the suffering love of Jesus in our place, who was crushed so that we wouldn't be? Friends, a sight of the love of God in the midst of your life can sustain you, even if it feels like you're about to to let go. He's got his grip on you. Father, thank you. 
for this good reminder of your good love for us. And now as we come to your table, as we gather as your people in a moment, and we look at each other across the room, and we're reminded um, that, yeah, we, we, have not, we have not always loved one another well. We have not always shown the goodness of God that you've shown us in the way we relate. This table, this bread, this cup was for us as a people, as your people. This table not only reminds us that we have union with you, but union with one another. And so would you come by your spirit and help us to taste and see that you are good to sinners like us because of Jesus. And then empower us by your spirit to be good to other sinners like us too because of Jesus. And now we ask that you would take this bread and this cup, set these elements apart from their normal use, let them be for us signs and seals of your love for us as your people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.